Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Hi, uh, welcome to Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. This is twice on Sunday. This is where we review the week that was on Heard Tell, and we hear from the knowledgeable guests that we're very proud to bring onto the program. We try to cover things from interesting angles, get on folks that you may not hear from in other places, get to the information, turn down the noise, find out some more in-depth things than we get just from the noise of the news cycle. Uh, it was a great week on Heard Tell, and we kicked it off with our friend Todd Kelly, a longtime long-form journalist. He's been around. He's seen it all. Uh, he's one of the uh, Ordinary Times original guys. He's been a mentor and a friend to me. I always appreciate his perspective, and we talked with him about a wider perspective on the events in Ukraine, how the situation affects us domestically here in America, how the media is reacting to it, how the people are reacting to it. And we greatly enjoyed our conversation on Monday with Todd Kelly, which you can view right now. I can't even hazard a guess. Is it interesting that I, I think this is a good litmus test, though, of we have something so serious that it's just burning through a lot of the nonsense. And you're right. finding out really, really quick um, the people who can dial it down when they want to. You're finding the people who um, I know the terms overused, but the, the people that it's just a business model or it's just the grifting. And I know we overuse that, but it's right. still a good term. And maybe some of them just assumed we were talking a lot. Some of them just assumed, well, everybody else in the world's grifting because I'm grifting. And that's all of a sudden him like, oh, no, these bad people are serious about this stuff. Yeah, I, I think some of this is actually starting to burn through. And, and some folks that have kind of been on the wrong side of things, maybe this is a moment of clarity of like, OK, at least on this one thing, maybe I need to take a step back and reevaluate a little bit. Well, that, and that's the hope, isn't it? Um... I think we've all, those of us who are online, like, I think we've seen a bunch of this where um, when things were first happening uh, in Ukraine um, and everybody started being surprised by how well they were holding up, you still saw people who were trying to find a way to work pronouns into that narrative um, who looked, you know, obviously ridiculous. Um, and I think so. I think there are two ways that this could possibly go. And one is what you're saying that people are sort of being reminded of what their deep values are, what their core principles are, and they're getting back to them. And with any luck at all, they they'll stay there. And we'll we'll go back to having sort of that we disagree, but everybody's sort of grounded in principle. Um, I think the other possibility, which I think is just as likely, unfortunately, 
is that it's more a reflection of a complete lack of foundational principles that everybody switched sides on the Ukraine super fast as the wind was blowing. And then potentially they'll drift back to where they were as soon as this is over. Like maybe the, what I hope it's not like to give like the best analogy I can give is I hope it doesn't end up being like January uh, 6 of 2021, where you remember there was that period of about a month where everybody on both sides sort of, this is bad, this is wrong, this is not who we are, but that didn't last. And I'm hoping that this with the Ukraine lasts. I, I don't remember seeing this much positive energy about democracy and the forces of good and standing up to evil uh, as I've seen this week in I don't know how many years. Is that I, the- I, I, I hate to like, and, yeah. and I don't even know that it's going to go well for the people in Ukraine over time. And so I feel bad saying that like, I find something hopeful about this, but I do. Yeah, I find it hopeful too because it's an indictment on us. We were—I was talking about it this way. This this is part of the American privilege is that we get to pick and choose our problems. But it really does, and it's an indictment to us. But it's just the truth. When we see evil, we do tend as a nation to rise to it historically. And there was a lot. We we just spent a couple of years debating of well, could we rise up to a World War II moment? Could we? Are we still that kind right. of a country? I'm going to be optimistic here. I think we have an answer to that, that the, by far the vast majority of at least Americans and even the world and Europe, they've got an evil they're facing now. And almost all of them, and some of them, it took them a day or two, they're responding to it and recognize it. And I think this is a big positive to a question that we in the commentariat have been kicking around for a couple of years. Yes. The answer right. is yes, we can stand up to an evil. Yeah. Um, and like I say, we, it may not last, uh, but you know, for the moment, I think that I I just want to live. I just want to live in this moment where it feels like everybody, except for one country, is kind of standing up and doing the right thing, or at least you know, not standing up and doing the wrong thing. Um, it it is greatly heartening to me. Talking about. Todd Kelly, I almost said our Todd Kelly because that's his Twitter handle, but you need to be following him because he has great wisdom for all of us. Um, something in your largesse as a as a longtime journalist, though, I, I think this also cut into how we consume media in America because all of a sudden the commentary and the panel shows just don't seem quite as important. And I know, look, I'm already one of those people. I get a lot of overseas news anyway because I just can't right. stand network news in America. I've I've talked to a lot of people and I've seen a lot of people that I don't have contact with. They're all saying the same thing is like, hey, where do I get a good news feed? Where do I get good information? This has definitely been a technology event. It's been a world event because it's being live streamed from the people involved in it. Is this going to be a clarifying moment in American media where we start going, okay, the old method of covering these live events is different because everybody's a journalist now and everybody can go get their media. Do you think the the national media and the network media has a moment of, wow, we're kind of getting bypassed on one of the biggest stories in decades? No, I wish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wish that were the case, but I think we're going to continue 
to see the same pattern that we have um, where the vast majority of uh, what refers to itself as the news media is in fact simply an entertainment vehicle that's designed to make money um, and a very small uh, subset of the news media is actually journalists and investigative journalists uh, doing day-to-day lagging grunt work. And I, I don't see anything that's going to change that because, you know, basically because that's the way that capitalism works um, and that it is very expensive comparatively to go out and produce real journalism and it doesn't sell as well as the cheap stuff, you know, where you have a couple of talking heads on and yell at one another. Like that costs nothing to produce other than, you know, the salary of your host. And so I think that is going to be the dominant news media for a very long time. Yeah, the uh, we joke about it, but you have the opening segment and then you have the guests to talk about the opening segment and then you have the panel discussion to talk about the guests talking about the opening segment. There's your first 30 minutes of every news program right there. Yeah, and I and I think what we don't like I don't think this gets pointed out as much. I know that we I think we've talked about this before, but um most of the people who are on the panel are there to sort of draw eyeballs. Almost nobody is an expert on what they've all gathered to talk about. Um, almost nobody has any kind of special insight. Um, but that's not, but people don't, you know, it's not something I don't, I think that people come to with the expectation that they are going to get a deeper understanding. I think that they come either to be entertained or to have a particular uh, idea that they would like to have reinforced, actively reinforced. Yeah, it turns into a funnel really quick. It, right. it, it was one thing we've tried to do, and and not just our little program. We do it at ordinary times too. It's like, you know, what a concept. If you have a science question, go ask the science expert. If you got a cybersecurity right. question, and and the panels, and I'm not knocking them, I'm just picking them. But the network news programs, like a CNN, it's the same seven or eight people on every panel for every subject, no matter what it is. Yeah. And all due respect to them, I'm sure they're fine people with fine insights. But when you have the same, you know how this works, you produce shows. When you have the same eight people in the same green room over and over and over again, there's going to start being some, <laughs> you know, there's going to start being some group thinking there somewhere just because human nature is undefeated, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's that mo- classic moment from a few years ago where Anderson Cooper, who I genuinely like, like. He seems a really likable guy. But there was that moment where, and you probably remember this, where he was interviewing Jeffrey Lord about something, um, a, who is a regular guest and a friend of Donald Trump's. And at one point, so Cooper sort of breaks down and says, you know, well, of course you're saying that. Like, you're like you're just a shill. You just repeat whatever Trump says. You, you, and the question that I couldn't understand why he was not asking himself was like, well, why do you have him on every other day? Like if he has nothing to contribute, why is he a regular guest of yours? I know because pro wrestling, you got to have a heel to have a good guy. You got to have yeah. a bad guy to argue with. So that's the thing. Yeah. Uh-
come back to her tell on Tuesday's program, uh, Joshua Crawford. On Tuesday's program, Joshua Crawford, a Young Voices contributor, uh, he's the head of the Pelican Institute in Louisville, Kentucky. He's also an attorney, and he brought some perspective on things that happened in criminal justice. Now, President Biden, in his State of the Union address, kind of came out strong and used the term fund the police, and he repeated it for emphasis. What does that mean versus defund the police that we've heard so much about the last few years? And Josh brings his perspective both as an advocate now in the policy realm, but also as a former prosecutor about what does and doesn't affect the crime rate, what does and doesn't make things better, what we need to do better in demanding accountability from the police, what we need to do better as a community in asking for reforms. We got into that with Joshua Crawford, and you can watch that clip right now. Yeah, and we're talking to Josh Crawford, Pegasus Institute, an attorney and a Young Voices contributor. Uh, this is an ugly, hard question, but I'm just going to ask it because that's where we're at with this conversation. When we talk about police accountability, and you just mentioned it, that, yeah, the the things like in New York City, you have to have the accountability element of it. The one thing that everybody should be able to agree on, whether they're social justice folks or conservatives, you need accountability in policing. The hard truth of this is there's just no other mechanism for true accountability and policing other than the funding and controlling the funding to make sure people are accountable, is it? Well, so the, the interesting thing about that is that crime concentrates among a small number of people and a small number of micro locations. Police misconduct also concentrates among a small number of officers. And so um, there have been a number of evaluations done that have found, you know, that north of 50 percent of complaints in an entire department are against a relatively small number of officers. And so what there actually needs to be are mechanisms by which the, the bad actors are, are dealt with as bad actors, as opposed to trying to either financially or structurally change the department change entire policies. That's one of the things that we're kind of living through the consequences of here in Louisville was long before the, the botched execution of a warrant that resulted in the death of uh, Breonna Taylor, there was a high profile incident in which a, a young black man was pulled over by two LMPD officers and the LMPD officers um, it, it didn't assault this young man whatsoever, but, but mistreated him verbally. I mean, we're, we're inappropriate with him verbally. And rather than reprimand those officers or retrain those officers or retrain the entire department on how to deal with those things, LMPD changed its motor vehicle stop policy. And so because of the actions of, of two officers and the, the perceived community reaction to those actions, the entire stop policy changes and there's some negative consequences associated with that stop policy. And so what policymakers actually have to be able to do is to, to recognize the reality of the concentration of those misdeeds and then uh, adjudicate those misdeeds accordingly. Yeah, talking to Josh Crawford, you talked about it in your piece you wrote back in February. Uh, you used the term hyper-focus. Um, the problem is, of course, the federal government doesn't do hyper-focus really good. But when you right. talk about things like uh, violence intervention, like the federal government's great at, here's money, go hire a bunch more police officers. They're, they're right. good at that. But that's not solving the problem. These right. local policies, like you just said, you have these focus groups that need attention. You have focused areas that need attention. How do we marry those two? How do we get that square peg in that round hole of you have the, the federal money to come in and try to help local municipalities that might be over their head? But at the same time, those pieces are incongruent with each other. Uh, talk about that a little bit and how we can maybe streamline that process some. 
Yet the protection of public safety and the preservation of public order is primarily the responsibility of local police departments enforcing state laws, right? The federal government has a role to play in the form of task forces. Uh, Obviously, there are federal laws that can be broken. There are federal law enforcement agencies, but it is primarily the responsibility of local departments enforcing state laws. And so because of that, the federal government can uh, inject money into some of these places to help solve some of these problems, and that's valuable. And the federal government can and should be repositories of information on best practices. Um, if something works well in Boston, it doesn't mean that Omaha knows that it exists. And so the, the federal government can help say, hey, this thing has worked really well in Boston. They've replicated it in Baltimore and Minneapolis. And so, hey, Louisville, hey, Omaha, hey, Birmingham, uh, you ought maybe to try this uh, because these these situations may be the same and it may work and it may not. Um, but primarily because you're t- talking about local law enforcement, uh That is who is going to be uh, your primary entity that is responsible for the protection of public safety, but is also going to be able to be the most innovative and responsive to the specific needs of the community. There are some sort of universal truths in in public safety policy. Like I said, a lot of it is is what they refer to as the law law of crime concentration. Crime concentrates in uh, certain areas and among certain people. In large cities, about 5% of one block street segments are responsible for about 50% of your crime. Uh, so that's one block street segments. Uh, in small cities, it's like one, or excuse me, it's uh, two to 3% of one block street segments are responsible for 50% of your crime. Uh, the same is true of individuals. About 5% of offenders, not 5% of your population, 5% of offenders are responsible for 50% of your violence. That's about a half a percentage of your city's population are responsible for more than 50% of your violence. And so local departments know who those folks are. Uh, Other entities and nonprofits know who those folks are because they're the same folks uh, that CPS is dealing with. They're the same folks that the schools are dealing with. And so when you focus on those individuals and the groups that they're a part of, again, those street groups or gangs, which are major contributors to a lot of this in our cities, then you can focus law enforcement resources on those folks where they need the law enforcement resources. And you can focus social service resources on those folks. For for a fair number of those people, they want to leave those lifestyles behind, uh, but but lack the resources to do so. And by resources, I don't mean they lack the money to do so. I mean, they lack a government issue ID. They lack a, a driver's license. And so every time they drive a car, they're getting pulled over. They have money for rent, um, but don't have a, a savings account or something like that, right? And there's there's ways to leverage these things to get folks onto successful paths in life that can help leave that lifestyle behind that are a lot more simple than most people think, right? Like most people think like, oh, this person needs to go get a college degree or, oh, this person needs to get a job. And there's some truth to that. But a lot of these folks have needs that are much more basic than that. And if you can meet those needs, then they can get themselves on a track or they can get a job or they can get some additional education and they can start to become uh, productive members of society. Yeah. Talking to Joshua Crawford, uh, he's the executive director of the Pegasus Institute in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, let's put a bow on this with Louisville, Kentucky, though. We started with President Biden, the State of the Union, the pomp and circumstances, the concentration of political power. You are in a city that was front and center uh, with social justice and criminal justice issues for the better part of two years now, really. As you dedicated, it wasn't just Breonna Taylor. There was stuff before that. There's been stuff since that. 
Put a personal face on it for people that just see a headline and Louisville and the national headline, though, because you live there. All those resources you talk about when there's contention between the community and the police, those resources get stretched in, in ways that are unhelpful. The police get stretched in ways that are unhelpful. The citizens are stretched and unhelpful. Just talk on a personal level what it's like in a city when the police and the community are not working in partnership. And that kind of just messes up everything else, doesn't it? Well, what happens when those things aren't operating the way they're supposed to is Trinity Randolph. Trinity Randolph was a three-year-old girl who uh, in, in the middle of the day was executed in her front yard uh, along with her father and uh, while she played in a playhouse and was buried in a Disney coffin. When those things don't work well, it's DeQuante Hobbs Jr., who was a seven-year-old boy who was sitting at his kitchen table eating birthday cake, playing on a tablet uh, when a bullet came through the front window uh, of his home and struck him in the head. And he bled out while his mother tried to perform CPR to save his life. Um, Louisville had 188 murders last year, 173 the year before that. Uh, We had uh, more than 20 children killed uh, last year. And that's what that looks like. Um, When these things don't work well, the most vulnerable members of our community who are in the most desperate need of the most basic functions of government and civil society are the ones who suffer the most. back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Uh, the man who has been the guest the most on the Herd Tell program, Dr. Michael Siegel. He's, he's an astrophysicist. Uh, he is one of the smartest people I know. He's also done a lot of writing the last few years on COVID because he can translate uh, academic ease and science ease in these papers into plain language and explain complicated terms so well that even I can understand them. And he's back on the program again. We talked a little bit about space. We talked about how space exploration still affects us to this day. And we love talking science and tech with our friend, Michael Siegel. You can hear part of that conversation right now. We keep pushing the technological edge, though, but do you see like big leaps coming? Or are we in a period of time where it's going to be incremental process? Where do you see the future of astronomy and astrology here in the next few years? Uh, well, the future of astrology, I can't talk about, but the... Uh, My fault, I said astrology and not astronomy. That's the, the astrology is that thing in the back of the TV. Now I'm dating myself. The back of the TV guide used to have astrology <laughs> in it. Astronomy, I apologize, sir. Go ahead. No, that's fine. Um, I, I just couldn't resist the joke. Uh, astronomy, the thing is, every time we think we're to a point of incremental change where we've solved most of the mysteries, we discover that we don't know we discover something new that revolutionizes things. One of the things I tell my class is the history of astronomy is a 6,000 year history of the universe telling us we don't know half as much as we think we do. When I was a graduate student, we thought we had this cosmology thing, you know, the shape and structure and content of the universe sorted. And then we discovered dark energy and we still don't know what dark energy is, even though it dominates the universe. Uh, We used to think that the solar system that we have was a model for what solar systems would be like. And then we discovered that they have infinite variety and so forth. So science has a way of 
telling you, oh, I think we've got it all figured out. We're just tidying up around the edges. And then you just drop off a cliff because there was something that you hadn't considered. There is right now a growing tension in our cosmological models, our models of how the universe as a whole that may reveal a whole new branch of physics. We don't know yet, or it may just be um, observational error. We're still uh, arguing about that and figuring that out. I think the big thing for the 21st century as we go forward for the next few decades is trying to find the evidence of life outside of our own Earth, both with, within our solar system to see if Mars had life early in its history or Europa has had life at some point, and looking at extrasolar planets. Our technology is improving to the point where we may be able to look at the atmospheres of planets in other star systems and see what's there and get a read on how common life may be in the universe. This was a question that if you'd said we had a solution 30, year ago, 30 years ago, people would have laughed at you. I don't think anyone's laughing anymore. They think that this is something that is within our reach within the next few decades. Now, let's define that, though, because I because I read you and I actually try to get into the scientific side of this so I can keep up with you and not be a total idiot on it. Um, when we're talking about defining life, though, when I when I say life in the universe, everybody starts thinking, you know, some humanoid type of alien species. But scientifically, y'all are looking at building blocks of life. You're looking at uh, simple bacteria. You're looking at simple cell structures. You're looking for foundations of water particles. This is kind of the stuff you're actually looking for. And there's a high probability that you can find it out there. That's why you're so hopeful of it. It's not we're going to find little green men. It's we're going to find trace evidence. Is that a good way to term it, maybe, of this stuff? It's, it's more than that. It's that if we were to find that, say, Mars early in its history had the beginnings of life, and then it died out. If we were to find that, for example, there were lots of planets in the universe that had atmospheres that were conducive to life, that would make the, you know, first of all, indicate we weren't alone, but also make the possibility of little green men more possible. There are 200 billion stars in our galaxy. And based on our current knowledge, we estimate there are tens to hundreds of billions of planets that are in the habitable zones of their stars. Getting a handle on how many of those planets are actually habitable, getting a handle on how many act may actually host life, gives us the information we need to know how likely or unlikely it is that we are alone in the universe. At, at some, is it just the basic theory, though, that like almost every somewhere in the universe, there's always going to be those basic building blocks? Or is there specific places you're looking? You're talking about those zones of habitability. Is there and is it one of those things where, well, maybe we need to redefine what we call basis of life for the outside of that zone, or is it just in that zone? Mainly what we're looking for are things in that zone, since that's where we know life can occur, what we call the Goldilocks zone, the, the area around a star where the temperature of the planet would be conducive to having liquid water. But certainly uh, at some point, we will have to expand our definition. We found that even life on Earth can exist in fairly extreme environments at the bottoms of ocean vents and very acidic water that we ourselves could not live in. And so we are certainly going to be looking to expand that definition as we go forward. But right now we try to look for life that's similar to us because that's the easiest to identify. So once again, we're coming back to like you talked with the dark matter though, is so much as science is trying to figure out what we don't know about what we don't know, isn't it? Yep. The, the, there's, there's stuff you know you don't know, and there's stuff you don't know you don't know. And the stuff you don't know you don't know tends to be much larger. Speaking of things we do and don't know, you've been doing all the COVID work for us at Ordinary-Times.com, talking to Michael Siegel. Uh, we're two years into this thing. 
where do we go from here? We just had a Super Bowl where nobody was masked. Everybody took their vaccine and they had a wonderful time. We just had a state of the union with all the leadership of the country unmasked, vaccinated, tested with a few notable exceptions that wanted to get social media attention for not getting their 30 second swab. Where are we going? Because now they want another $30 billion to inject into COVID stuff. I think the mask discussion is pretty much over. Schools have listed it for at least the time being. I, I think just the population's done with it. What's the next step from where you're sitting? Because you've actually done the science on this stuff, not just the thrown around term science. You actually read it. You've been pretty measured on this thing. Where, where do you think we stand at it as of you know the beginning of March here in 2022? I, I think we are at a point where we're accepting that COVID's going to be around. And so the latest indication is that three shots of the vaccine or two shots and then a COVID infection provide long-term protection, maybe for years. And so that plus maybe a booster every year means that most people will have pretty significant resistance. And at that point, you start asking, what are the trade-offs? You know, is masking, is social distancing worth it? in terms of the prevention of death and suffering. And I think we've gotten to the point where we're saying, no, it's, it's not worth that. But I think going forward, we need to be better prepared for if a variant comes back for other diseases. There are other COVID variants out there. There are other coronaviruses out there. There's Ebola out there and so forth. And so I think while there are criticisms I could make of the Biden administration's response, I think what was articulated in the, in the State of the Union of kind of looking forward and having more testing, especially genomic tracing, so we can detect new variants early and keep track of what's going on with COVID. So we know if it's getting deadlier, if it's getting less deadly, how fast it's spreading, what the risk assessment is. I think that's the way to go uh, to move forward. And there's always, you know, people say, well, they're thinking about the politics. Well, there's always a political calculation in, in pandemic response. If you know, we were not going to do what China did, where we welded people into their rooms. That's just not going to happen in a country like the United States. So already there's a political calculus there. There's always that political calculus of what the country will put up with, how much damage you're doing to the economy, what trade-offs you're willing to make in terms of the negative effects of your prevention measures versus how many diseases and deaths you're preventing. With so many people vac vaccinated, with the dominant variant being less deadly, with now emerging from cold and flu season where people can go outside and be less exposed, I think that they are making the calculation that, okay, now's time to ease off, take it easy, take a breath, look back, see what we did right, what we did wrong, and plan for the future. And just to put a bow on this with our friend, Dr. Michael Siegel, we always appreciate him being on Hertel. That's why he's been on more than any other living human being, not just because he's one of the smartest men in the galaxy. Um, to put a bow on the COVID conversation for just for right now, though, is uh, you are on the academic side of the house. You know how to read all them academic papers that everybody else throws around online without actually reading. Uh, just for the common person, the common man, do you see on the academic side of this and the government research side of this, have they learned any lessons? Have they changed anything meaningful, do you think, for the next time? I think that they have. We have learned some lessons. The Probably the biggest lesson we've learned is that we need much better monitoring of what's going on, much better tracking, not just of infections, but of variants so that we can keep track of them, know when they're going on, know what we need to do. We need a much more proportional response so that we know, all right, these are the rules when there's a lot of infections, these are the rules when there's not as many infections and so forth. You know, and 
it's hard to know what COVID's going to do. You can't predict mutations or variants or what's going to happen. But I think, you know, there have been a lot of people, and these are the people I generally listen to, who have looked back and said, all right, here's what we got wrong. Here's the lessons we've learned. Here's what we need to do for the future. And I think that's the conversation we need to be having, not so much throwing blame around it at both sides, you know, the sides that underreacted and the sides that overreacted, but saying, all right, what do we do right? What do we do wrong? What's sustainable? What will the American people put up with? And how does that inform our future strategies? Welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Uh, we love to cover history. It's a nice change of pace from current events, but that's important because you know history is what lets us know what's coming ahead of time a lot of times. Our friend Sarah Stook returns to the program once again. She has a wonderful piece she wrote in elections.daily.com. Our friends there, we have their contributors frequently. And she wrote about the education of presidents. And we talked about how a lot of the themes of education we've been debating for years in the country apply to our presidents as well. Ivy League versus non-Ivy League. We've had presidents who went through an apprenticeship thing, didn't go to college at all. We even got some college dropouts in there, believe it or not. And presidents are like everybody else. The reasons they do and do not go to college or get that higher education has a lot to do with their socioeconomic backgrounds, has to do with their willpower, has to do with what they thought they were going to do with their life, whether or not they intended to wind up in the White House. Great historical perspective on our presidents and the education thereof from Sarah Stook right now. Washington that doesn't get talked about was he was a brilliant businessman by all accounts. He was probably one of, if not the richest men in America by the time he died. So obviously, whatever education he has with his own wits and cleverness, uh, it clearly worked for him because he was successful by any measure you want to put to George Washington. Yeah, he was. I mean, his wife, Martha, was also excellent at it. Obviously, at a time where women's education was very limited, she proved herself extremely well, especially after she was widowed for the first time. So clearly he married a woman who he knew would be an equal partner to him. And I think, you know, that obviously, again, worked out very well for him. Talking to Sheriff Stuck. Okay, a fun thing that I think has passed through time, but something we should probably revisit with the mess our education system is, we have quite a few presidents who their their the whole of their formal education was apprenticeship. There was a time not too long ago, it's actually still on the books, although nobody does it anymore, that being a lawyer and studying the law was an apprenticeship thing. Uh, that got in the news with the Kim Kardashian stuff a year or two ago. It's still on the books. But we've had presidents, um, Van Buren, Fillmore, Lincoln. These guys all learned from an apprenticeship model that's archaic and we don't think about it anymore, but it was foundational to how they rose to the presidency. I mean, exactly. Lincoln, Van Buren. I mean, Lincoln barely had a formal education as it was. Van Buren went to his local school, for example. You know, they didn't have sort of amazing educational opportunities to other had. So they went the apprentice route. And, you know, they said Abraham Lincoln basically taught himself he had a brilliant mind. And that probably got them into access to places in a university or college wouldn't. They're able to connect with people in their community and want to start building up on a practical level then that's how they get their education and it worked again you didn't need to be at harvard or yale i mean if you look at andrew jackson who was 
you know, he was orphaned during the Revolutionary War. He went through absolute hell, nearly died. You don't need to have that academia behind you. And I think that's definitely more so back then. I, I think somebody who didn't go to college would probably not be president today. I mean, I could be completely wrong, but, you know, when you look at Ron DeSantis, who's leading the Republican Pact, Harvard and Yale, you know, you're not going to get somebody who didn't go. Yeah, true. Uh, Sarah Stook joining us. One more item on this that you touched on in the article is a lot of things have changed. Some things have not changed at all. The presidents who did not go to college mostly was because of things like poverty, like access to care. You talked about Washington. Um, there was others that you listed about, you know, their fathers died, so they had to forego college. And this thing, they had to go to work and then they go to college later on. Those are universal themes. It's the same reason people don't get education now. And it's still applied to some of our presidents even way back then. Exactly. Like I said, you know, Lincoln, his family was pretty poor. He was, you know, if he could read and write, obviously he was a very clever man because he basically taught himself. But not every president is blessed to have been a George Washington or Thomas Jefferson born into wealth. However, that's changed. If you look at Bill Clinton, his father died before he was born. They lived in Dirtpoor, Arkansas, and he ended up going to Oxford, Yale and Georgetown. Obviously, that's because of our current system. But maybe 100, 200 years before, Bill Clinton would not have gone to, to higher education. He would have probably been maybe an apprentice, but he would not have gone to Yale. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Thrilled that you're joining us for this twice on Sunday show where we recap the guests of the week. On Friday, Andy Young, Young Voices contributor, uh, also does a lot of stuff with Tech Freedom. He joined us to talk about the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. It's kind of a unique organization within the federal government because it's quasi-independent. It doesn't really report to other heads, but it also has overlap with the DOJ. And Congress and the Biden administration are wanting to empower the FTC to do a lot of new things. Now, the thing about it is uh, Andy watches these congressional hearings and the FTC, by their own admission, is understaffed and does not have the ability to do their core competencies right now. So why the push to expand and empower them to do things like get into commercial issues like consumer choice, self-preferential by tech companies, things like this that are greatly going to affect all Americans. There seems to be some issues here. So Josh Young joined us to talk about these issues, the Federal Trade Commission, antitrust, competitive practices, more regulation, and yet another government entity with vast investigatory powers wanting to be grown. Are we causing a problem where none exists? Are we growing government for no good reason? What are the issues underlying all this? We get into it with Andy Young right after this. This agency actually has really widespread and quite powerful uh, surveillance and investigative and oversight power, but a lot of that power it really hasn't historically used a lot of, and that kind of brings us up to the modern times of you writing a National Review about it, where uh, some of our Congress folks and senators have noticed that they have all this kind of power, and they kind of want to start focusing it in other areas than its traditional uh, oversight, don't they? So Congress has introduced a new bill. It's called the American Innovation and Choice Online Act. 
The main crux of that bill is to make it illegal for large technology companies to do what's called self-preferencing. Uh, self-preferencing is when a large technology company favors its own product or services. So for example, if you do a Google search for a restaurant, Google places its Google Maps results at the very top of that search. That would be an example of self-preferencing. Another example is Amazon web searches. If you search for a product on Amazon, sometimes Amazon places its Amazon basic item that it manufactures there at the top of the search. That would also fall under the definition of self-preferencing. Right. And that's online, of course. That principle at like, for example, a grocery store would be what gets put on the front of the shelf, what gets put on an end cap, that sort of thing. It's kind of the same concept, isn't it? It is. Yeah, we're all pretty familiar with this. I think we usually refer to it as generic products. Walmart has generic products. CVS has generic products. Uh, but once you put it onto the internet, Congress calls it self-preferencing. And of course, the road that leads down to, and you know, the word trade commissions in the title of this organization. So let's just back up and cover that real quick. If you start, you're going to get into almost a price control situation really, really quickly, because the whole idea of the generics is it's supposed to be a little bit cheaper. If you start picking and choosing things like that, now you're messing around with the market level pricing of it. Correct. If you make it harder for these firms to make generic products, which that they can then offer at lower prices or you make it harder for them to promote these cheap products, they'll stop building them and consumers will lose access to these cheaper options. Now, this is where your piece in National Review, when you went to write about this, the history of this organization, the Federal Trade Commission, how do we get to where they want to start picking and choosing what's on a shelf or what Amazon or Facebook or whoever puts on the front of their web pages? How does that tie into antitrust, which was kind of the core principle and anti-competition that was the core principle of this agency. That seems like a big gap that got filled. I'm assuming that didn't happen overnight. There was some mission creep in there somewhere. Yeah, there has arguably, arguably been some mission creep in one specific regard that's, that's caught my attention. And that's that the uh, traditional unfair methods of competition and anti-competitive conduct. Uh, in those cases, the FTC was focused on protecting consumers. Like I mentioned, making sure that prices don't go up. But in this case, in the, in the case of self-preferencing, as we mentioned, self-preferencing conduct actually often creates lower prices for consumers. So in this case, with this bill, Congress is asking the FTC to shift its attention away from protecting consumers and keeping prices low to instead uh, protect other competitors that are trying to compete on these platforms like Amazon and Google. And the Congress is now asking the FTC to protect those smaller competitors from this self-preferencing conduct uh, which is taking the FTC's eye off of the ball in terms of using its resources to protect consumers. Yeah, talking to Andy Young from Young Voices, it's important to note why you say taking their eye off the ball because there's been some questionable stuff with this organization as far as their resources, as far as what they're able to do and not do. Um, you detailed pretty extensively over uh, recent history here because you know you have congressional oversight, so these people have to testify publicly by their own admission, they're having trouble just maintaining their core mission right now, aren't they? They certainly are. And again, like you said, these are all quotes coming from the agency itself. So on, on August 3rd, last summer, the agency cited a tidal wave of merger filings that is straining the agency's capacity. Uh, the agency has also gone through some staff, losses of staff, including its chief economist recently, 
and some members of the agency that are involved with some of the litigation that the agency is doing. The agency also has several rulemakings open to pass regulations in different parts of the economy. So the FTC certainly has its hands full without even having to deal with self-preferencing on the internet. Why, why is it the overturn? Is it just the, uh, the drain in federal employees we've been seeing everywhere? Is it a labor shortage? What's the problem with the FTC specifically? Uh, we, we understand we all knock the bureaucracy of government and we, you know, rightly so, but there's got to be some specific thing about this particular agency. Why, why are they having trouble with this? Why are they short staff? Is there one or two things that's actually causing this beyond just normal machinations of bureaucracy? Yeah, it's, it's common enough to see staff turnover when there's a change in administration, like there was from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. But in this case, we're seeing much higher turnover than you would usually see in that case. And that probably has to do with the new, fairly extreme direction that the FTC has gone in the last eight months. Uh, the FTC has said that it wants to set out to change the, the way that it regulates mergers and oversees the U.S. economy and has indirectly criticized senior staff on the FTC for being passive in the past where now the agency wants to be active. So I think there is some discontentment among the staff and some senior staff feel they've been criticized and that's leading to turnover. Now, to my unlearned ear, when I start hearing about a government agency that we've already established has pretty extraordinary investigatory and regulatory powers, they even have surveillance powers over a lot of company. They have overlap with the DOJ on a lot of things. When I start hearing terms like aggressive, this doesn't sound like a regulatory agency that's looking to call balls and strikes and referee the economy as kind of a neutral party. This seems like they, they're looking to be the protagonist and to drive things the way they see that they want to go, or more specifically, the administration that they answer to. Yes, from both the leadership in the FTC and from the Biden administration, both have signaled that they want to go after large technology companies. They've identified them as an enemy. And in that way, they're no longer calling balls and strikes. They're no longer neutral observers. They've picked the companies they want to go after. And they're picking the kinds of harm that they think these companies are causing in the, in the economy, such as self-preferencing. As I mentioned, it's a pretty novel theory of harm as far as antitrust goes. So yeah, they are trying to push enforcement in the direction that they think it needs to go. Is That'll do it for us on Herd Tell today. Thank you for joining us for this twice on Sunday show where we reviewed all the guests of the week. Reminder, the best way to get Herd Tell is to hit that subscribe button. It's down there in the corner if you're watching on the YouTube. If you're on any of the podcasting platforms, just subscribe. It's free. It only costs you a click. You will get new episodes of Herd Tell each and every weekday. The Good Talks, that's the interview portions, will be out each and every afternoon, East Coast time. And then you'll get twice on Sunday like this. We also have long-form podcasts. There's over 36 of them now where we deep dive into an issue with a knowledgeable guest. You get all those for free, plus the back archive. We're well into the hundreds 
of episodes that you can go through. Only costs you a click. If you don't mind spending two clicks on it, make sure to share us. All of those platforms have ratings and review features. Please leave us a rating and review. That's very important for us because it lets people know to check our program out. And you can share it on your social media. We don't pay for advertising here. It's all word of mouth and what we get on our own social media. Make sure you're sharing us and following us on all those platforms. If you want to reach out directly, Show at gmail.com. Send us an email. We've actually used uh, reader email and suggestions on the show. Happy to interact with you at Show on the twitter.com if you want to keep up with us that way. All the guests, if you look at the bottom third graphics, please follow them on their social media. Mine is four for the fire at Twitter. Love to hear from you. So until we see you Monday morning for a brand new episode of Herd Tell, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. Thank you so much for joining us for Twice on Sunday and Herd Tell. We'll talk to you then. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.